Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. As the debate around online content moderation escalates, one key question persists. Can we create clear guidance for online speech, be it principles, norms, or best practices that everyone can agree on? Facebook, Twitter, and other social media platforms demonstrate daily that there is not one easy answer to this question. Some think the solution is more moderation, while others think it's no moderation at all. But it's worth remembering that content moderation is not just a U.S.-based freedom of speech issue. Across the world, authoritarian regimes are using online censorship to silence dissenters and retaliate against their own citizens. In many of these situations, human rights and the ability to speak freely as a citizen are often at stake. These situations are often complicated by the lack of consistent community standards on social media platforms and consistent guidance for moderation efforts. There's also the challenge that these platforms don't account for linguistic differences that may create confusion rather than clarity around any rules or guidance for freedom of expression. Today's guest is Julia Wanum. Julie has spent many years working to ensure that internet users have the access to the same rights online that they have in the physical world. Julie recently became executive director of Stanford University's New Content Policy and Society Lab. Her work aims to find solutions to the challenges of moderating content online while respecting fundamental human rights. Julie is also executive director of the Internet Sans Frontiers, or Internet Without Borders, which is an international network of NGOs that seek to promote the free flow of information and knowledge, defend digital rights, and fight censorship. Julie is also a member of the Facebook Oversight Board. Julie joins today's podcast to explain why we need clear principles around online speech that are centered on the core ethics of free expression, along with how these principles can be applied across different countries. Julie, welcome to Explain to Shane. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. You and I met when you joined the over the Facebook Oversight Board, and so it's been a year and a half. How's that, how's that going? Just give us a quick update. Yes, it's been a year and a half since we launched, and it's been a year and a bit more, Mom, since we started accepting cases. The cases involve appeals from Facebook or Instagram users who are not happy either because their content was taken down or because Facebook and Instagram have left content up. And we also received appeals directly from the company, so Meta now, uh, when Meta is facing challenges applying its own rules and they asked for our guidance. So yes, it's been a very exciting first year. We just released our transparency report. We've learned so much. So it's like we're all watching from afar. Like, how's it? Oh, looks like it's going pretty well. I think it's going great. So you started doing that. Tell us actually about your background in, I'm not, I'm going to, the Internet Sans Frontiers. I don't know. I just, I just had lunch with somebody who's fluent in French. And so he'd probably kill me for even trying that. <laughs> no, that, that, that was perfect. Oh, Internet Sans Frontiers, if you want with the, you know, 100% French accent or also Internet Without Borders. We're also trying to transition to calling ourselves in English. <laughs> so it's what we call a digital rights organization. So digital rights, meaning human rights that people enjoy offline. Our assumption is that they should also enjoy those online with the same protections that exist offline. And that means defending freedom of expression specifically. So freedom to speak, of course, but also freedom to access to that medium, which allows you to speak. That's a big problem around the world. Not everyone 
first of all, can afford accessing internet. And secondly, can freely speak because either their government will shut down the internet or will limit access to social media through imposing taxes or even through imposing, well, censorship, cutting off access to social media. And on the other hand, we also focus a lot on, on issues around privacy because we think that both are very interlinked. Anonymity, for instance, is a great way to explain that. Some people are really keen on having their privacy protected with the highest degree of protection because they are involved in the business of, well, speaking of criticizing their authorities, their governments. And that can be a very dangerous, risky business. Allow me the expression, but it's probably not the best one, but it's a very dangerous endeavor in some parts of the world. So some people will favor being able to remain anonymous and not link their digital identity with their physical and real world identity. So these are some issues we work on, but increasingly, and that comes to my work at the board and the other occupations that I have and that we'll talk about, increasingly freedom of expression has become related to content issues. When we say content issues is precisely those publications, those videos, those audios that you post on social media platforms or on content platforms in general. And uh, increasingly, we've seen that platforms, companies, private companies are being asked to take down too much or not take down enough. With the consequence of that is that some groups, some places around the world, it's become increasingly difficult to express yourself freely online and specifically on social media platforms. Understanding that social media is sometimes the only internet platform that exists for many users around the world, for billions of users. So yes, content is becoming a freedom of expression issue and specifically limits that we place to content are becoming freedom of expression issues and democracy issues. And yes, that's why I, I, I decided, first of all, to, to join the Oversight Board to make sure that we can have principles, you know, democratic principles, human rights principles that frame our conversation on what should be taken down, what should be left up on the one hand. And on the other hand, I, I recently launched this new initiative at Stanford University, which is called the Content Policy and Society Lab, which aims to have companies, governments, civil society organizations, users, academics discuss together. First of all, that's something that we don't do enough. I don't know. Until I joined the board, I did not know how challenging it was for a company like Meta to uh, enforce its rules. I was always on the always not happy side, you know, as an activist saying, okay, Meta, we're not happy. We're seeing this in those countries. You should take it down. But then I, I joined the board and I realized that, well, these are very complex infrastructures. We have to acknowledge that even when we do advocacy. And that's the same with governments. We see a lot of regulations out there being discussed, but many, and even being adopted, but many of these regulations are not even efficient. One example is a uh, fake news law. It's, now, it's known as, as such in the general public. Fake news law that was adopted in Germany in 2018. So that's already almost four years ago now. The aim of that law was to, well, have platforms impose to platform the obligation to delete in a matter of, I think, 24 hours, any content that was deemed violating according to the inter interpretation of the government, the German government and its authorities. And if the companies failed to do that, they would face fines and I think quite serious fines. Well, four years later, almost 
problems are the same. I mean, we're all still talking about fake news. There were a lot of worries and concerns earlier this year when the uh, elections happened in Germany, the, the presidential and parliamentary elections happened because people were complaining that right wing groups and extremist groups were sowing hatred, disinformation within on platforms and that affected societies and that affected the democratic debate ahead of the elections. And so, well, we all thought with the law, you know, all this would be behind us, but we're realizing it's not the case precisely because, and that's my opinion and, and that of my organization and based on having worked in this field for some years now, well, that's based on the fact that for many of these governments, we have no idea what the Silicon Valley is about. Personally, as an activist, it took me to come to the Silicon Valley to understand about trust and safety, which is becoming a very important <laughs> part of, uh, of the work these companies are doing. So, yes, I, I so want to policy for that. We'll get to the lab in a second, but let's stick on Germany for a minute. So watching this from the very beginning, like 2018, obviously what's fake news to somebody, it's so obvious. You, you know, we'd had this conversation 15 years ago. You'd be like, well, obviously, you know, you'd know what's fake news. And now you're like, ah, I'm not so sure. All the yeah. time. Maybe it just <laughs> pisses me off, but it, it's not really fake. Or sometimes it's just downright not accurate, right? And then what's media? So that you've got multiple questions there. So since, okay, let's say you've had three years since the law was enacted, give us the positives and the negatives. Or is there anything from that law that, that seems to make sense that you, you think people should emulate and what just went totally not well? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what made sense with the law was this first attempt to acknowledge that online there were serious threats. It was really, I think, the, the first time that a country and a democratic country acknowledged that there were harms caused online. Whether we like it or not, there are very bad things happening, including when it comes to discourse and speech. Now, the limitations, obviously, is that, well, anyone who gets involved in the very tricky endeavor of defining what is good, what is bad speech, what is true speech, what is false speech, obviously gets to a dead end. And I I don't even think that this should be, I mean, that's a very personal opinion, not speaking of any of my (laughs) organizations right now, but I don't think this is the right conversation to have. Rather, what I think we should be more focused on doing, and I hope we'll see more of these in the coming months or years, is having the conversation on the principles that we should uphold ourselves and also have our governments, have the companies uphold whenever speech is involved online. And the first and foremost principle is, of course, that we have the right to talk and to say whatever we want. I mean, whatever. Of course, we'll talk about the limits in a minute, but that should be a very strong principle that we should all commit to respecting. And then, of course, if I'm allowed to say anything I want, then you're also allowed to say anything you want. But I also have other rights and you have to respect those other rights. So obviously, we have to remind the, the, the very important principles that would allow us to impose limits on speech. I'm getting more familiar, but I was very less familiar with First Amendment's obligations with regards to what are the kind of limits that could justify you know, censoring or limiting speech. But I know that in international law, which is a, a law that I know more of, 
I'm a trained lawyer. I studied at, at La Sorbonne in Paris and uh, I studied international law. What we learned is that to limit speech, which by definition and by principle should be unfettered, to limit that speech, you have to respect three conditions. The first one is your limitation has, has to be legal. So you, have, you need a law, you need a rule that is clear, that is accessible. The second rule for limitation is that your limitation should be proportionate. Proportionate means, well, in the case of platforms, let's say if you wanted to limit the, the reach of a publication, is taken down the only way to go about it? Or could we add interstitials or could we, well, algorithmically limit the reach? That's another very interesting debate. But there are other ways to go about this. Can we involve in counter speech as governments? That's something that I personally don't see enough of. I see more of you should censor, but I don't see much of what's our responsibility as governments to make sure that in the first place, those ideas don't exist. Last but not least, whatever you're doing should be necessary. So what is the, the imperative that justifies you to censor? The imperative could be safety, you know, security or safety, preventing harm, physical harm in the, in the case of, of platforms. So many other in, imperatives that should be, well, there is a balance to be stricken, right? And that balance is never easy. But the problem with many of the laws that are put out there, they tend to make you believe, they tend to be drafted as if it was very easy. It is not. I, ha I have discovered it is, it is not, even though I had been an advocate for free expression for so long. It is not easy, especially when you're a platform, especially when you're dealing with content, billions of content every day. It's very complicated. Especially when you're you know, trying to be without borders and the whole idea is, yeah. you know, when do those zeros and ones that are making up the content hit a border? And, you know, do they know that? Absolutely. <laughs> it wasn't passed through a, a barrier. So being relatively new to the First Amendment and being out in California, is there anything that has surprised you as you've had to kind of integrate it into your thought process? Oh, yes. There, there's so much that has surprised me. So the first thing that was striking is when, when you come from Europe, we have this um, this assumption that, you know, the Americans, they there's no limit. Right. First Amendment it means absolutely no limits. But then I, I first came to the United States two years ago. First, as a fellow, I received a, a fellowship from the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University, which is a, a center that studies Internet and society. Well, I, I got access to academic reading and writings about First Amendment issues. And what I was surprised to, to realize is that, yes, there is a debate also about the limits of speech, right? Are you allowed to say anything? And I, I, I don't think it's that easy. You know, it's, it, I've come to the reali realization that there is a discussion, at least, on this, which is not something that we, that's not the vision that we have in when we are studying international human rights and particularly, well, the texts that derive from European text and, and American text. I mean, when we do comparative law, that there is this kind of assumption that, well, in the U.S. you can say anything, but it, it's not that obvious. You know, it, there is also conversation about, of course, race, about anti-Semitism, about anti-LGBTQI, about a lot of things. So, yes, that's the first thing that surprised me. And the second thing that I discovered and which is linked to the first one is that, yeah, there are more, there is more proximity between, well, 
international human rights standards with regards to, to speech and expression and the First Amendment. And this is an exercise that we've, we've had to, to do as board members when we were deliberating on, on a case, the most famous that we've had so far, which involved the former president of the United States. Obviously, that we had to do that comparison, right? To, well, understand, well, the defense also, as you probably are aware, users are able to present a sort of defense or at least to have a statement, to present a statement to the oversight board. And that statement presented by the, the legal team of the former president, which is available online, will refer to, we are in the United States, we should apply, then the board should apply <laughs> constitutional rights written in the US constitution. And so we have to do that comparison. And what we realize even doing the deliberations and is that there is actually some proximity in the way things are, are framed. So I think there is uh, some pedagogical work to be done to uh, probably quash this idea that, of course, the freedom is wider in the U.S. It has less limits, but there are conversations about the limitations too. One of the things that surprised me every once in a while you guys put out statistics is how many of the cases that you have had presented to you are not actually based in the United States. Your numbers are actually pretty strong internationally. So what kind of cases are you seeing? We're seeing different cases that touch on different community standards. So as a reminder, community standards are the rules that apply to your speech, to your publications on Facebook and Instagram. And what we realized that we've had a lot of hate speech cases. Obviously, that's a big problem on the platform. We've also had COVID and this misinformation. We've also had harassment bullying and harassment. There are rules about that on the platform. We've had quite some very interesting different set of community standards violations on the one hand. We've had more cases where users were asking for the content to be back up. So to reverse the decision by Facebook to take down, which is interesting because when the oversight board launched almost two years ago, so in, in May, 2020, we first launched and then we started working on cases in October 2020. But when we launched, people were kind of frustrated because they said, oh, well, you're only working, you're only going to work on cases that are being taken down by the platform. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is content that is left up. But it, it turns out that people are seen less in kind. I mean, out of the million appeal, more than a million now, I have to say, appeals that the board has received. There aren't so many cases, appeals that involve someone else's content that you think as a user, as an appeal person, you think should be taken down. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a very interesting, that that's a very interesting learning. And also another important one is we have received cases from the United States, well, Northern America in general, from Western Europe, many, some from Latin America, Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and also some from the Middle East. And what I realize is we probably need to do a better job, if you, if you allow me, to reach out to those users who do not speak English. That's a big problem. You know, Facebook has, Meta now, has a hard time making sure that all its users in any languages can understand the rules. So I'm very curious how you want to enforce a rule that nobody understands in a country. 
Is that because yeah. the actual translation or the, I mean, it's like we both do governance and I was very amused when I was at an internet governance meeting in Egypt and the, the Egyptian government official looked at me, she goes, that doesn't actually translate. So to us, it just means government. And I was like, Ooh, there's a big difference. Well, that means yeah. a lot, right? You know, like if the word doesn't translate, they don't understand what you're trying to do. Absolutely not. Well, there are different there are different problems with translations. Of course, the difficulty in literal translation. So, so making sure that, for example, Arabic. Arabic is a is a group of languages. You have Arabic spoken in Tunisia, which is different from the one spoken in Egypt, etc. Okay. But then you have only one translation for for Arabic. So obviously, the, the certain nuances will be lost. That's obvious when you when that's the decision you make. And then you also have the case where there is not even a translation available. One example I can share is Punjabi, Punjabi, which is a language widely spoken in Southern Asia and particularly in India. Well, community standards of Facebook were not available in a lang- in that language that is spoken by more than 100 million people. Wow. That is outrageous, honestly. And <laughs> I, I, I feel sorry that we had to wait until the board came to have this. So there are some inequities, obviously, when it comes to, well, when you want to be a, a global platform, there are some inequities that shouldn't exist. And, and language is the first of, of it, if you want to make sure that people use your platform to, to its fullest extent possible. So let's talk about the lab. I know yeah. that you, this is relatively new for you, but you're working with multi-stakeholders and like explain your process. You're doing workshops and roundtables and it just sounds really fascinating. So tell us all about it. Yes, thank you so much. Well, the lab, again, stems from this idea that we don't talk to each other as different stakeholders. I mean, we talk to each other just to complain about each other, <laughs> but we don't really listen to each other and listen to the challenges that we're facing. One challenge, for instance, as a civil society organization, we don't understand civil Silicon Valley companies. We don't know how they are built. What are the departments? I mean, I've realized that having a conversation with the public policy team is a completely different conversation than the one I would have with the product teams. That's one thing. As companies, well, one challenge is the scale. It's, I mean, until I joined the board again, sorry to go back to that, but that path has really been an eye-opener on so many things. And so we, we decided to um, create this platform for that, to allow, first of all, conversations through different set of events and activities. So you've mentioned the workshops that we organize. One thing that I want to specify that those workshops intend to create the safest place possible to have the most candid conversations possible on different subjects. The first subject that we dealt with was the moderation of dangerous organization and violent extremism. We had speakers from Discord, from Give City, which is a, an international organization, non-governmental organization, which gathers different companies who have accepted to collaborate on tackling terrorism and violent extremism online. We also had speakers from the Nigerian government, which is interesting because we, we hear from a lot of governments, but not that many around the world, actually. So it's often the same. And we also heard from an activist from, from Pakistan focusing specifically on issues around, well, human rights, women's rights, particularly, and the moderation of dangerous organizations such as the Taliban. Let's name one out of a few. So 
The second thematic of the workshops that we organized was about moderation beyond social media. We always have moderation in big tech, Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so forth. But there are other groups, other companies that are facing moderation challenges and that have been quite creative in, in solving those. So we wanted to make sure that, well, people who attend the workshop, usually they're high level employees within tech companies from different teams, not only the policy teams, we have integrity teams, we have responsible tech teams, we have content policy teams, a lot, many of those. We also have a lot of trust and safety teams. Ask about um, that. Yes, yeah. we even have a, a workshop programmed uh, for May 2022, where we will have a conversation with trust and Sa- the Trust and Safety Professional Association, which was created, I think, a year ago, and that gathers trust and safety professionals from different companies. And they've been on the, they've been on the podcast. Oh, they've been on the podcast. Yes, I did listen to that episode and I loved it. It came up, you know, like just a couple of years ago and you're like, it needed to have happened five years before that. And they've done such a great job. I've been fortunate enough to, well, discuss with them a lot and learn from them so much about the, the work that they're doing. And that was something that we're really intentional about at the lab is involving those who are at the forefront at the front line of what we're talking about. It's very easy to say, take down, take down, take down. But we don't, when you don't have to deal with that content every day, it's a different story. So we want to make sure that trust and safety professionals are included. Content moderators, wherever they are, are included. You know, it's very easy to have them in the Philippines, far away. But what they're seeing is, is they need support. And we yeah. want to make sure that those conversations can help change the narrative in the industry about trust and safety in general content and harmful content specifically. So yeah, we organize this private uh, workshops. We also want to, when things allow after Omicron, I hope very soon, we also want to have some in-person gatherings in small settings to begin with, to still allow those conversations with between different teams in the Valley, government officials, and also activists who are other people at the front at the front line on the front line i talked about content moderators but we as activists we're seeing a lot of very disturbing things and we don't have as much money as a platform so we do what we can with the means that we we have and uh, we see a lot of things that are very problematic so it's also very interesting to make sure that conversation is also flowing to inform the work of the valley of people working in the valley because being 12 hours ahead of the rest of the world minimum is a challenge. You know, a lot of things happen when you wake up. So what is there an outcome document? Like if anybody wants to yes. watch what you're doing from afar, how do we best find out and know what you're doing? So you've had workshops. Do we, you know, if you want to keep watching the bouncing ball? Yes. So we have policy briefs that we are preparing with main takeaways from the very interesting conversations that we've had in the private workshops. All the workshops are under Chatham House rules. So you'll never find, oh, XYZ said that, but the ideas are the most important and I think are the ones that should circulate as wide as possible, as widely as possible. We also have public briefing events where anyone can attend virtually for now. And the the, the first one that we organized was dedicated to the crisis in, in Ethiopia. Conflict. And content, how do you deal with that when you're a content platform or even when you're a government, when you're in the Ethiopian government? How do you how do you anticipate that there is going to be an in, 
well, an increase in the amount of hate speech because the particularity of the Ethiopian conflict is that it has a very strong ethnic color. So hate speech is very central and has led to offline violence. That is a reality. And I'm saying it because the Oversight Board recently worked and recently published a decision on Ethiopia where we were, well, we criticized the company Meta for the lack of policy with regards to what happens when there is a conflict. I still can't believe there is not, not no such, you know, regulation, exceptional regulation that would tell you as a company what to do when there is a conflict. Because when there is peace, everything, I mean, things can be dealt with more or less well. But when there is a conflict, especially in countries where institutions are certainly not as stable as we've seen in the U.S. I mean, January the 6th was a year ago and we all thought horrible things were ha would happen. But thankfully, there are institutions, there are checks and balances, there are civil society organizations, there are citizens that are civically educated. So a lot of catastrophe can be averted. But that's not the case in every country around the world. But nevertheless, Facebook is available. Nevertheless, well, January the 6th scenarios happen in those countries and the safeguards are not there. So one of the things that we try to convey in that decision is that as a company, you have even more responsibility. And one of that responsibilities is to have sure is to make sure that you have the necessary safeguards when a conflict like the one we've seen suddenly unfolds in, in countries without stable institutions. I imagine part of the challenge on that is the timeliness of it, because you know innovation and expression happen when going to what you earlier were talking about, it's like freedom of expression without borders. And now it's like, how quickly can you put the lever down on something you know that's getting explosive? That's got to be, especially for the moderators, the whole moderator's dilemma is something that I've been spending a lot of time looking at. It's like, you know, when, when do you call in the right people? And I think that would be one of the initial challenges. Yes. And actually, one of the aims of the Content Policy and Society Lab is to also be that place where, well, if you are a startup, you want to scale, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's what your investors are going to ask you. But even when scaling, you have to be very aware of the social governance, environmental risks that exist out there. And this is becoming central. It can cost billions of dollars. That's the message that my organization, Internet Sans Frontières, has been trying to convey to companies, telling them that, well, if you think that ignoring markets that are 12,000 kilometers away because, you know, they're not in, well, people there don't use credit cards as much as they would in the U.S., so their revenue will not be as interesting. If you think that way, it's going to backlash and very badly. And, and, and history recently has proved this point. When we didn't pay attention to privacy preoccupation, we just thought, oh, okay, business model is more important. We need to make money. We need to support those companies. It is true. We need to. But if we don't think about the privacy risks, one day governments, democracy is going to wake up and say, this is not okay. And rightly so. So yes, the Content Policy and Society Lab ambitions also to be that place where if you're a startup, if you're going to scale, well, we can give you some clues about things you should think about. One of our next events on January the 25th, we'll, we'll have a webinar on January 25th, 2022. We'll have a webinar with the Cyber Policy Center. So the Cyber Policy Center is actually 
the center where the lab is incubated. And they have a series of webinars. And one of the, the speakers that we want to welcome is Erica Banks. Uh, she's quite known in the industry as a former Pinterest employee and a whistleblower. And uh, she worked with Ithioma Ozoma to have the no, uh, Silence No More Act that would protect, well, former employees from uh, abusive MDA commitments. What she said is, had we paid attention to accessibility, we probably would have ha found great solutions with regard to content and specifically image recognition. You know, if we had put in place image recognition systems in place for blind people to allow them to see the internet with even without vision, well, we probably would have been more innovative in deepfake recognition, for instance, right now. I mean, that argument was extremely compelling for me. That's exactly the kind of conversations we want to foster at the lab. If you think that one thing is not important, actually it is. And putting the necessary safeguards before the, the problem becomes a problem will avoid so many economic losses and political backlash, obviously. <laughs> it sounds like you're, you're heading towards potentially having some best practices especially for some of these platforms, like the, the, the learn and the learned, you know, like yeah. things that have worked, things that haven't, I mean, are those things that are you're trying to highlight or how do we best learn the lessons that you guys are getting very steeped in? Well, first of all, we have to make sure those lessons are available somewhere and that somewhere is known. Right now, we've seen a lot of scandals. There are almost scandals every week <laughs> when it comes to tech and society and specifically one company. But do we really need to take the time to sit down and learn from the scandals? I don't think so. We have a lot of hot takes on Twitter, in the press. You know, we write op-eds. I wrote a lot of op-eds. But then all that is lost. So what, we, what we're thinking of doing, and, and that's a major project in 2022, and you'll learn more about it early next year, is we want to have a academic paper on content policy and the rule of law, content policy and democracy, so that we can make sure to put vocabulary, common vocabulary around, yeah, freedoms, around democracy, around rights, around the rule of law. You know, we're tired of just talking, okay, policy, what does policy mean even in the rule of law? Okay. When you have a policy, well, someone creates it or a group rather creates it. Right now that group is located within companies. We don't even necessarily know who but then they create these rules and then they are enforced and then we're not happy, but then we don't know who to complain to. Well, now we have the oversight board, which tries to come out with principles that will apply beyond the individual cases that we work on. But all this needs to be gathered in a single space where if you are a product team member in a company or you are a CEO developing a startup or you are an activist who wants to learn from past bad experiences, well, this journal can have, give you some, some clues through comments on decisions made by the oversight board, for instance, or even by analyzing from a rule of law perspective, some of the tricky challenges that we're facing when it comes to content. For instance, what does it mean when Facebook doesn't allow the Taliban's and at the same time, Twitter allows them to speak and have their spokesperson? What if one content, a screenshot from Twitter is posted on Facebook? <laughs> But it's a, a screenshot that, you know, it's about an information shared by the spokesperson of the Taliban's and that could have saved lives. What do you do <laughs> since Facebook is banning them? I mean, these are very interesting questions that I look forward to 
see, analyze through the lens of science, through the academic lens, and specifically, yes, the rule of law and democracy lens. Well, Julie, thank you for all the work that you're doing, because I know that you're learning on the fly like everybody else. But, you know, there are there are norms in society. The Internet isn't sure that it wants all of them. (laughs) But I do think, you know, figuring out how to find that middle road and the right road and then also the legal construct around it, that that is something we've been struggling with for a while. So I love knowing that you're spending every day thinking about this and we will be learning the lessons from your lab. So thank you for being a guest today on Explain the Shame. Thank you, Shane, for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.